For most of this century, there has been a single story about global food security, that food insecurity existed outside U.S. borders, in low- and middle-income countries. And in these countries, food producers themselves were the most food insecure of anyone. This single story lent itself to a simple policy solution, increasing agricultural production in developing countries. It is still incredibly important to do this, but not only this. As demographics change, as geopolitics shift, as the world wrestles with the COVID pandemic, and as climate change causes temperature and weather extremes worldwide, today's food insecurity requires new solutions. Have policymakers kept up, or are they relying on yesterday's answers? Welcome to the Reset the Table podcast, where we'll make room at the table for fresh ideas for solving food insecurity around the world and right here at home. My guest today is Jo Swinnen, Director General of the International Food Policy Research Institute, or IFPRI. Dr. Swinnen joined IFPRI in January 2020 and has since led the Institute through two major transitions, the reorganization of IFPRI's umbrella group, CGIAR, and of course, COVID-19. He has a long record of research and leadership on agricultural economics and food security in the United States, in Europe, and around the world. And he's joining us today from Washington, D.C. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So to start, you became Director General of IFPRI in January 2020. And we didn't know it then, but a lot was about to change beyond the reorganization of CGIAR, which I'll get to momentarily. What was it like to lead IFPRI at the onset of the pandemic? And how did IFPRI adapt? It feels like a long time ago, actually, although it's only like 14 months ago or, or 16 months ago. So for me, it was going to be a moment of major change anyhow, because I had not been working in the CGIR before or with IFPRI. I came from a different background, although I've had a lot of interactions with the Institute in the past, obviously. So for me, it was going to be a major change. But then, of course, after uh, two months, when I was leading the Institute, just really only getting to know a lot of the people here better than I had known them before. And uh, then COVID hit. And so it affected us obviously very significantly. It affected the way we operate. Like we do about half our staff are in the headquarters and half our staff are in field offices, mostly in Africa and South Asia. We do a lot of field work and to basically go out to connect with people in rural areas, urban consumers, uh, do survey work, etc. So all of that was put on hold as well because of the COVID. So it affected our data collection, essentially, which was the biggest impact. The other thing is, of course, it had a major impact on the things we study, we analyze, and which is food security in, in the world. And clearly, COVID has had a major impact on the food security situation in the world. And so it has uh, changed the way we do research, but also the issues that we were analyzing at the same time. Can you give us a sense for how data collection adapted? How did your survey methods change? A number of things changed, but the most important change was really our moving from going in the field to survey work to uh, shift to phone surveys. So that has been a major change. If researchers have done an amazing job trying to deal with it, okay? And you can imagine that there's obvious problems with it. For example, the poorest people may not have phones, so you cannot call them, which creates bias in your analysis. We also do a lot of uh, what we call field experiments, where we go into the villages and we try to set up 
studies where basically people participate on that's very difficult to do to phones. But it also helped us having been in the field in many countries from before, the fact that we could rely on our previous household surveys to get quite rapidly, we got a lot of information how things had changed over the past months, etc. And I think that was very, very beneficial for our work. That's really interesting. I had mentioned the reorganization of the CGIAR system. CGIAR was formerly known as the Consultative Group for International Agricultural Research, and it's comprised of 13 separate research institutes around the world, including IFPRI. As a result of the CGIAR reorg, what has changed for IFPRI? We are still in the middle of the changes that are taking place. So what has changed for me personally is a a lot of meetings, a lot of discussions. As we have embarked on this restructuring process, it's been intensive in, in a number of ways because it's really a very significant restructuring and that we are going to. So all the institutes are going to be much more integrated in the new structure. And that, of course, it involves uh, changes in our research structure. It also involves major changes in just the personnel structure and how we are integrated in this thing. We are also preparing much larger research programs. At some point, we had many small-scale projects, which really was not very efficient in terms of management, in terms of overhead costs, etc. Also, collaboration with more interdisciplinary work will be enhanced, I think. But of course, there's challenges. For example, I think IFPRI is doing very well at this moment. We are the leading policy research institute within the CGIR. And so for making sure that we, we keep that, we get better it through this process. And any process has really significant transaction costs going with it. Certainly such a major restructuring. So we try to do that as best as possible. For those of us in Washington who work closely with IFPRI and rely on IFPRI's research and analysis, what kind of timeline can we expect for the reorg? Do you think it will continue to play out over a period of months or years? There is two parts. One is the reorganization of the research program. And then the other one is the structural reorganization, how the organization is organized in terms of units and in terms of leadership. So part of our research is funded what we call bilaterally, meaning with direct contracts, for example, with USAID. And part of our research is funded through the centrally funded programs. And this centrally funded research agenda, that will change as of January 2022, really fast already. So in, in half a year, really. The restructuring of the system or the structure of the organization will start being put in place as of uh, the summer of this year as well. And that will be more gradual in terms of moving to the new structure. But it's going to be about a one-year transition period and then... I'm moving to a more integrated structure after that. Dr. Swinon, I'd like to turn to the impact of COVID-19 on food insecurity around the world. But first, I want to talk about food insecurity before the pandemic. Following the global food price crisis of 2007-2008, food insecurity had fallen for a series of years until about 2014, after which food insecurity started to rise again. So things started to get worse. And a typical explanation for this is it was the impacts of climate change and particularly conflict in certain hotspots around the world. But I understand that you've done some research that tells a slightly different story, that food insecurity was actually rising in places that weren't necessarily negatively impacted by conflict or by climate change. Can you tell us some of the top lines of your research? It's not that climate change or conflict have not played a role, actually. They've had, have played a very important role. I just think that the focus is very strongly on, on these two, while basically the reduction of economic growth has played a very important role as well. And so if we go back a little bit further, even then before the food crisis, there was tremendous progress in reducing hunger in the, 
reducing malnutrition over the decades. And that was also the period where there was very significant economic uh, growth in developing countries. And so there's really a turnaround in, in 2015. And of course, climate change plays a role. It plays a role directly. It also plays a role indirectly through affecting conflicts, for example. If you look at the numbers prior to 2015 of people who had to leave their home compared to after, it's almost a doubling, which is really a very strong increase. But if you look at the economic growth numbers, then you see around for the same period that the very significant positive growth rates in low and middle income countries, particularly in Africa, has come down very strongly. And so COVID is, is reinforcing almost all of that, actually. That's a very important clarification. It's not that climate change and conflict did not play a strong role because they certainly did. It's just that they were not the only two drivers of food insecurity from 2014 and on. Can you give us some examples of places where food insecurity got worse starting about the middle of the last decade, not necessarily because of the impacts of conflict or climate change? Well, I think several African countries have, okay, and but the impact in Africa is mixed as well because basically several African countries, for example, are exporting minerals and oil. And other countries are importing mineral and oil. And they have been differentially affected by the significant change in, in oil prices and mineral prices. The exporters have suffered significantly from the reduction in basically export earnings, but typically also they're strongly linked to their budgets. Turning to COVID-19, and I want to talk to you about a couple of different pathways of impact. First one is food supply chains. One line of reporting says that Food supply chains suffered a complete breakdown because of the pandemic. And then you have others who say that food supply chains exhibited admirable resilience. And obviously, it's not one or the other. But can you walk us through what your take on this? I think the fact that they've been quite resilient is probably more convincing than the ones that they have had a complete breakdown. If we look back now, a lot of these disruptions were early on. Okay, and in specific markets, I think overall, there's often this discussion about global versus local value chains. I think there's been problems with both of these, and there's been resilience on both of these. I don't think it is a simple dichotomy there, or those have done well and those have not done well. The ones which actually have done best, I think, are the modern supply chains, because there, there have been some disruption, but not very much. The ones which have been most affected, I think, are the ones kind of in the middle, which were kind of transitioning from traditional supply chains, which were just local exchanges versus getting produce from the countryside to the consumers and the cities, but at the same time, not very well integrated yet. And they are clear there's been issues. Obviously, well, if you drive tomatoes somewhere, you got to wait for three, four days I mean, that's a big problem, right? While if you deal with staple commodities, for example, grains, I mean, it's much less of a problem to redirect these things. And so that's an issue. People were unprepared in many cases. And so there were certainly quite significant disruptions early on. There was also the issue of not just getting the produce from the farmer to the consumer, but also getting the fertilizer and the seeds to the farmers so they can basically uh, prepare for the next harvest. I don't know about you, but I've found sometimes when people have asked what a positive story out of the pandemic is, and I have sometimes struggled to answer that question simply because food insecurity among Americans and people around the world has increased so much. I find personally one of the most optimistic stories coming out of COVID-19, the innovation, the entrepreneurship, the creativity with how people have dealt with these disruptions. And so this is not uh, certainly true in the private sector, and this goes from the big multinationals trying to introduce new technologies, no new organizational 
restructuring, but also at a much smaller level, the, the local SMEs, the farmers associations, consumer groups trying to deal with that. You talk to business people and they say, well, we've introduced technological changes in our systems in eight months where we thought we need 15 years to introduce this. And so I think that's really encouraging moving forward. There's been a lot of digital innovation because digital is an obvious technology to overcome some of the COVID constraints. E-commerce has grown tremendously. That, I think, is an important lesson for us to take forward. I think so, too. You put it really well. There's a piece that you put out recently where you said the many cases of innovation we identify paint a picture of, of a private sector and others keen and able to innovate. And I think that it's easy to overlook that, but I think that we're actually all experiencing that in our own lives as well. So I think that's a really important point to emphasize. When it comes to the increase that we're seeing in food insecurity and nutrition insecurity, to what extent do you think that supply chain disruptions and food price increases have played a role versus other disruptions, particularly in job loss, wage loss, and remittance losses? What do you think are the roles of each of those factors? By now, we know that the recession affected loss of incomes, loss of, of jobs was a much more important factor than the disruption of the supply channels in causing food insecurity. Again, it, I really do not want to say that the, the further disruption of the supply chains did not play a role. And in certain circumstances, particularly early months, it really was a factor, right? Looking back, the, the second factor, the loss of income, the loss of jobs has been much more important. What is interesting is if we look at the poverty effects in rural areas versus urban areas in, in developing countries, then we see that the effects are much stronger actually among the urban poor than among the rural poor, because many of the rural poor are farmers and so food production has been affected, but not to the extent like how services have been closed down, food services, but also other services and employment. And so the income effects on the urban poor are stronger. One of your researchers at IFPRI, I believe it was Rob Voss, put out a study. It was published either in late 2020 or early 2021, where he estimated that because of the impacts of COVID-19, poverty would increase by, I believe it was 15% in rural areas, but 44% in urban areas in sub-Saharan Africa. So just another data point in the more extreme effects of COVID-19 on poverty and food insecurity in urban areas than in rural areas. I want to talk to you about impacts on nutrition beyond the amount of food people are able to consume, but the impacts of nutrition immediately, but also potentially long-term. So what do you think are the major pathways for impact? And also what are the long-term effects? Yeah, the nutrition effects are strong. Huh? Your basic economic models or nutrition models will tell you that as soon as incomes go down, what people do, they basically shift from towards calories, really. Okay, And why is that? Because you really need calories to stay alive and they're typically cheaper than more nutritious foods. We predicted this and our surveys later on, which we've done in many countries now, are confirming that. that and this is concentrated again among the poor. It's really the poor which have basically shifted from a more expensive but a more healthy diet to a less expensive but less healthy diet. And of course, fresh fruit and vegetables play an important role in a healthy diet. And, and again, I mean, the disruption in the fresh commodities was bigger than in the, the staple commodity, so that those two things have reinforced each other. Yeah. And then one thing that we've observed in the United States and is being observed around the world is that women are suffering more adverse impact from the crisis. Why do you think that is? And, and also, why do you think that's the case in low and middle income countries and high income countries? Many people in our institute and IFPRI have been looking at these things. So there's a number of factors. One is that typically uh, economic recession, so the decline in income and job losses, 
typically have a, a stronger effect on, on women. The other thing is that access to water was really important okay, in the whole COVID period, right? And there again, this could be part of the jobs of women in a household to collect water and these things, which takes up a huge amount of time. Also access to food, the, the bargaining powers within the households play a role. What is really worrying, okay, is obviously that if it's affecting empowerment of women or their empowerment position, in household or in, in local society, this is likely to have longer lasting effects. And we also know that when it starts affecting children and schooling of girls, for example, versus boys, this has really long-term effects, okay? We know now that good nutrition in the early years is so important for later development of, of human beings. One of the most recent pieces that you published was in the Journal of Agricultural Economics, and you wrote that there's so much that we do not know and many hypotheses have not been confirmed by substantive analyses and reliable data. So if you could make a prediction, what do you think we will learn about the impacts of COVID-19 on food security in the coming months and years that we don't know right now? What do you think we're going to learn that will surprise us looking backwards? If you look at our global model predictions, and these are difficult, of course, because these are exante things. What is interesting there is that on average, uh, let's say the total number we predict in terms of uh, impact on food insecurity and poverty, they have actually been quite accurate. What we have adjusted or what the models have basically had wrong, if you want, or, or misjudged is the regional effect. So initially we had predicted much stronger effects in Africa and lesser strong effects in South Asia. And actually the situation has been the other way around. And so the regional incidence of things that we have learned has been different. But it's so hard to predict. I mean, who would have predicted three months that we have this massive outbreak in India now? And this, of course, should make us very careful making predictions about what's going to happen in Africa, maybe in, in the coming six months or years. Yeah, I mean, it might be a matter of years before we understand the full impacts of the pandemic on food insecurity. But I recall that was the case as well with impacts of the 2007-2008 food price crisis, where initially we thought that over a billion people had experienced acute food insecurity, but that number was revised many times over the subsequent years. Turning to policymaking, when it comes to global food security, what do you think that policymakers are getting right? And what do you think that they're missing right now? Everybody's trying to balance the health issues with economic development or the recovery issues or basically opening up shops so or sectors of the economy so people get an, uh, can get an income and a variety of other effects. As I said, I've been uh, pleasantly surprised by the expansion of social security programs, which I think was really important. What I think right now is everywhere budgets are going to be tight in the coming years. Just the impact of, of all the COVID, the health expenditures, etc., on budgets that we will be able to keep our development budgets going, okay, particularly in, in the Western world, and that there is sufficient attention to long-term investments that are needed. Everybody will be demanding for assistance for the sectors they've been in, but it's really important to keep investing in infrastructure, to keep investing in, for example, agricultural research and development. We know this has significant uh, benefits for incomes for poverty for obviously for food prices in the long run and these are typically the things that people under pressure uh, governments tend to cut down on while it's very important to keep these long-term investments going as well yeah are those the rec same recommendations that you think were summarized in the global food policy report this year i think a, a key point we made there is called uh, food systems transformation after covid 19 
And so there we take very much a systems perspective. So we look at the food system as a whole. And so the a core message there is you cannot look at different things in isolation if you want. If you want to talk about resilience, sustainability, you look at have to look at this as a system as a whole. And there's a whole set of policies that have to be taken in order to make this work. We cannot focus on one. How can we mobilize the right financial resources to stimulate the transformation of the whole system? It's challenging, but at the same time, 2021 is a very special year. And we're half in, half out of COVID. And at the same time, we have the Food Systems Summit coming up. We have the COP in Glasgow and the Nutrition for Growth Summit later on. So. What are you hopeful for coming out of the UN Food System Summit? Well, I hope very much that it's not seen as an end point or something, but as a starting point. I think that's really, really crucial. I also think, and this is a major point we make in our Global Food Policy Report, is that there's a lot of challenges that, that COVID brings us. So they're adding to the major challenges we already had. But at the same time, there's very important uh, positive lessons we can draw as well I mean, in terms of how people have taken this and people means NGOs, civil society, governments, private sector people have taken this as a need to make changes and things have been possible to make changes. And so it's both the fact that people have shown creativity, have shown entrepreneurship, things can happen. And I think psychologically as well, or our, let's say our mindset, how we think about change and re policy reform and, and private sector reform, consumer behavior reform, that is policy going forward. And if you can bring that mentality that that view into the food system summit i hope this can lead to as a start to major changes in the next decade well we hope we can check back with you after the un food system summit and again jos winen thank you so much for joining us today my pleasure that's it for today's episode of reset the table you can subscribe on apple or spotify and follow us on twitter at csis food until next time